Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning. I uh, am excited to be able to share this morning about faith in the family and how our faith impacts our families and what the purpose is for our families. Uh, And just uh, for those who do have toddlers, uh, we do have a toddler nursery available if you would like uh, for your toddlers and below to go there. So it's just out those doors and down to the left. Uh, this morning, you know, it's, it's about impossible to talk about how faith impacts family without linking it to the most important human relationship within the home, and that is the marriage relationship between husband and wife. Uh, so there, there will be a little bit of overlap with last week's topic that Pastor Harold talked about on faith and marriage. Uh, and the, the purpose of the family is inextric- inextricably linked with the purpose of marriage. Uh, and again, as Pastor Harold shared last week, companionship is one of the purposes of marriage. Uh, and since he covered that last week, I'm not going to go into that in depthly this morning. But I do have a lot of material to go through, so I ask you to do this. Listen quickly. All right? Just listen fast. So... I want to talk some about the deeper meaning and the impact of the companionship, the oneness of husband and wife, uh, and how that fulfillment of the deeper purpose of the oneness between husband and wife leads us to the purpose, God's purpose, for the family. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Now, since this isn't a message about marriage, I'm, I'm not going to talk about what it means for the wife to submit to the husband uh, or for the husband to love the wife. That's, that's a sermon in itself. Probably actually two sermons probably and marriage counseling sessions afterward. Um, so what I do want to look at, though, is what Paul says here at the end of this passage, uh, he, where he talks about, uh, well, he quotes from Genesis 2.24 in verse 31, which Pastor Harold read last week. And here, Paul is showing us a deeper meaning of that passage from Genesis. Paul is showing us that this being made one flesh ultimately is about our relationship with Christ. It is beautifully illustrated through marriage, but it is really about our relationship with Jesus. Now, don't think that that means Paul is dismissing this as pertaining to marriage. Uh, He, in fact, is reinforcing that this relates to marriage because he shows that the greatest purpose of marriage is for it to reflect the covenant relationship we have with Christ. So he's not dismissing it. He is showing how important it is for a husband and wife to be one flesh because it is to reflect the covenant relationship we have with Christ. This is why divorce is such a heinous thing to God. Divorce distorts the reflection of our covenant relationship with Christ. Uh, divorce conveys the idea that uh, the covenant relationship is disposable, uh, that the covenant, when all is said and done, doesn't really amount to much, Uh, that the union, the oneness between husband and wife, that is dissoluble, that a lack of happiness or uh, the lack of being able to fulfill your dreams and desires means that in the end, covenant is meaningless. That is not how God views covenant. That is not the nature of our covenant relationship with Christ. It is not disposable. It's not dissoluble. Now, there is a wedding, there's a tradition in our modern weddings that is a picture of this, uh, the exchanging of wedding rings. And, you know, whether it's the father walking the bride down the aisle, uh, the cutting of the wedding cake, the presenting of the wedding rings, uh, many traditions have arisen around the marriage ceremony that we now sometimes use as a picture uh, pointing back, reminding us of something bigger. Uh, As Pastor Harold spoke last week, uh, the cutting of the wedding cake can sometimes be used as a picture of the covenant relationship between man and wife. Uh, The wedding rings are another picture of that marriage covenant. We exchange rings to tell our spouse uh, that just as a ring, as a circle, has no breaks, no, no intersections, no end, so is our love and our commitment to the, co- of, to the covenants that we are making with them. It has no end. This points us back to the nature of the unending covenant that we have with God. And uh, just real quick, I, I know there may be some here who... Um, don't have wedding rings for one reason or another. Uh, maybe you don't want a wedding ring, or maybe uh, you've chosen an alternative to the wedding ring. Uh, some couples will exchange framed wedding vows. Um, engraved metal wallet cards are a popular alternative. I just want to say that whether or not you have a wedding ring, it's not an issue. Uh, however you chose to do it, it's only a picture. It's not set in stone how you do it or don't do it. There's no right way or wrong way. Uh, 
the wedding ring, like the other pictures and wedding ceremonies, uh, are just that. They're man-made pictures. So don't feel that it's necessary for you to have a ring or anything else for your covenant to be valid before God or with each other. We are under grace, not under the law. So God's covenants are not dissoluble. They do not end. To end our marriage through divorce distorts this truth since marriage is supposed to be a reflection of this truth. But when we, as husband and wife, strive by the grace of God to accurately reflect through marriage the nature of our relationship with Christ, fulfilling the greatest purpose of marriage, we in turn are setting the stage to fulfill the greatest purpose for the family. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Malachi chapter 2. It's the last book of the Old Testament, so it'll be right before Matthew. And I'll be reading from uh, Malachi chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13, he says this. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Now, this passage in Malachi is a very well-known passage for being one in which God makes his hatred of divorce very clear. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. I want us to look at verse 15 today. In verse 15, God states plainly that it is he who has made the husband and wife one. And we already saw from Ephesians 5 that the greatest purpose for this union is for it to be a reflection of our relationship with Christ. That as we continue to be more like Jesus, the more our marriages will reflect that covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. Capital C. Yeah, capital C for you guys. Uh, Capital C, church. Now, as our marriages fulfill this greater purpose, it will work to fulfill the purpose for the family that God gives in this passage. God says here that he joined them in union because he was seeking godly offspring from that union. That is the overarching purpose of the family, to glorify God by producing godly offspring. To glorify God by producing godly offspring. The purpose for the family is not, is not for us to raise good offspring. You know, good children who become good adults. We often settle for that. We settle for something along the lines, well, you know, my my kid went to church, uh, he was involved in youth group, did well in athletics and academics, even went on missions trips, uh, went to a great college, he married a good church-going girl, and now he provides a wonderful life for his family. I raised a good kid. 
I mean, yeah, it, it'd be good if maybe he had a desire for godly things or, you know, if maybe he wanted to live in a godly way, but, you know, he, he's a good kid. God says that the purpose for the family is for us to raise godly offspring. To settle for good kids is a poor, poor, utterly inadequate substitute. And it breaks my heart when I see parents content with such a shallow and ultimately, ultimately meaningless substitute. Well, I have, they're good kids. They don't drink, they don't do drugs, they're not in trouble with the law, they're good kids. But are they godly? Don't settle for good. Why do we often settle for this lousy substitute? I think most times it's because it's easy. To raise good kids takes a good parent. To raise godly kids takes godly parents. And being godly is so much harder than being good. Being a godly parent means that we daily must die to self and face who we are as a person as God in his grace shows us who we are. Being a godly parent is about who we are, and we don't always like to face who we are. To be a good parent doesn't require that. To be a good parent, it points not to who we are, but simply to what we do. All right, kids, got a question for you. How many of you are at church today? All right. Kids, if you didn't raise your hand on that question, I want you to look at your parents and say, why didn't you teach me better? Okay? So... How many of you kids today have your own Bible? Even if you don't have it here at church, how many of you guys have your own Bible? Okay, good. Um, how many of you kids have families that maybe not always, but at least sometimes during the week, uh, you pray for a meal before you eat? All right, the majority of us, again. Uh, you know, kids, if, if ever you guys eat a meal and you haven't prayed, I have a solution for you. There's a Bible verse you can quote for that, okay? It's Psalm 103.1. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, okay? And then it covers everything that way. So, when it comes to parenting, I am considered a good parent if I get my kids to church. Easy. To be a godly parent, however, means I have to live my life in a way that my children see that God is worthy to be worshipped every day. That means dying to self. I'll be considered a good parent if I buy my child a Bible. Easy. To be a godly parent, however, I need to regularly dig into the Bible for myself and then apply it to how I live my life. That means dying to self. I'll be considered a good parent if we pray before each meal easy. To be a godly parent, however, requires that I regularly commune with God, both in private and with my family. That means dying to self. I'm not saying doing these things will make you godly, but I will say that neglecting these things 
will be a hindrance to you becoming godly. It's easy to be good. Any person, humanly speaking, can be good. But we need the grace of God to be godly. We settle for raising good kids not because we think it's best for our children, but because it's easier for us. Less dying to self, less arguing, less frustration, less instruction, less correction, less standing our ground, less kids being mad at us. We settle for less not because we love our children, but because we love ourselves. We want comfort and convenience and being godly and purposing to raise godly children is not always comfortable or convenient. So we often settle for less, not because we love our children, but because we love ourselves. And disclaimer here, being a godly parent does not guarantee a godly child. Uh, as Pastor Matt said this morning, we can't control our children's hearts. So being a godly parent does not guarantee a godly child. And if a child only has a good parent, or even a downright lousy parent, it does not mean that child has no shot at becoming a godly adult. We're dealing with principles here, not promises. These are principles, not promises. Doing A, B, and C will never guarantee a godly child. And if a godly child, or if a child never has a parent who does A, B, or C, it doesn't mean that child can't be a godly child. God is a God of grace. He is a God of grace. But that does not, God's grace does not absolve us of our responsibility as parents. God is saying that he desires godly offspring, and the absolute best and most effective means of that is through a godly marriage that reflects the relationship we have with Jesus. It's not the only way, neither does it promise guaranteed results. As a picture of the effort that it takes to be a godly parent, to raise godly offspring, and how those results come about, God gives us Psalm 127. So if you got your Bible, turn there with me. And just a heads up, you know, when oft, often when we hear people talk about being a godly parent and raising godly children, um, we're expecting do this, do that, do this, do this. This is not a do message. This is a be message, okay? We're not going to go through a bunch of methods and steps of how to be a godly parent. Because how many of you guys have a child that's exactly like every other child in this room? Exactly. So a nice, clean, do this, 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 and this doesn't always work. So this is more about who you are, not about what you can do. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In case you haven't noticed, our society doesn't like children. It's not plainly stated that way, but it becomes pretty obvious. Especially for those of us who have larger families, 
we're pretty accustomed to um, the stares of people when we walk into a restaurant. Uh, you know, I used to be a professional clown, and sometimes I, I'm like, do I have my clown wig and makeup on? People are staring. And one thing I love to do is actually just stare back at them as I walk by with a smile on my face, and they're finally like, it's, it's fun that way. Um, but perfect strangers will make comments, um, some in jest, some actually in derision, you know, uh, have you guys figured out how that happens? Oh, you know, stuff like that. Um, oh, you guys need to get a TV. Oh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it shows up when children are spoken of as a hindrance to a career or getting in the way of pursuing desires and dreams. That's our culture. That's our society. God has a different take on children. He says they're a heritage from him, a reward from him. So, okay, quick quiz. If the world says one thing, God says another, and they can't both be true, which one's right? You get one chance. Now, if you had to think that over a moment, let's talk after service, okay? That's... So God says children are, are, children are a reward. You know, that means they're valuable. That means they're, they're precious. He says that they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And I'm sure a lot of us have read articles or blogs on that passage about children are like arrows in the hands of a, a warrior. And some of them are good, and there are others. Uh, and a lot of them that I read, they go on and on talking about what it means that children are like arrows. They'll talk about how the fletching of an arrow represents this in the child's life, and the shaft of the arrow represents this in a child's life, and the, the arrowhead, the point, represents this. And uh, then they put this all together to talk about how we can train our children to be these perfect arrows. And I say this with sincere humility. I think they've missed the point of this passage. Uh, let, me, let me give you my own word picture to help, help you see why I think these people are missing the point. Children are like a basketball. Now, how many of you, when I said that, you go, you went, wow, I, I never thought of that. That is deep. Suddenly, my whole outlook has changed. Pastor John is awesome. Probably none of you thought that when I said children are like a basketball. Well, maybe the Pastor John is awesome. I get that a lot. Um, okay, no, I don't. So please think it. Anyhow, notes, stick to the notes. Now what if I said children are like a basketball in the hands of Michael Jordan? Now maybe you can start to see that there might be something to this. Because we can imagine Michael Jordan taking that basketball, dribbling it down the court, weaving in and out of the other team's defense until he gets to the end of the court and goes up for one of his signature layups. Now, what changed? Was it the basketball? No, it was the same basketball. But all of a sudden, that basketball was in the hands of somebody who knew how to use it. And that actually brought life to the illustration that children are like a basketball. Now, I'm not going to go into how children are like a basketball because I haven't really thought that far about it. So I'm not going to go into that this morning. Uh, but 
that's why I think people who are focusing on the arrows and how children are like arrows are missing the points of the passage. The passage doesn't just say children are like arrows. It says children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. It matters whose hands they are in. It matters whose hands they are in. Uh, how many of you guys have ever seen any kind of Olympic-level archer or, or better? You know, it is amazing some of the things they can do. Um, I saw one guy shooting aspirins out of, an air, out of the air. Uh, they would take an aspirin and throw it up, and he would uh, take the aspirin out of the air. I saw a guy doing an exhibition where there were, it was, there were arrows stuck in the ceiling, and he would run and jump, grab an arrow, knock it, fire it, hit the bullseye, all before he landed. I mean, it was impressive. You know what would have been ridiculous in either of those situations? To go up and go, wow, those must be some pretty good arrows for you to be able to do that. Man, those are awesome arrows. You know, it's, it wasn't about the arrows. It was about the skill of the archer. Now, admittedly, I mean, if your arrow is like this, it's going to be hard to hit the target. Um, so all analogies break down. But... The skill of the archer is what caused the arrow to hit the target. I'm not leaving. Don't get your hopes up. Uh, Kara's brother uh, spent some time in Papua New Guinea doing missions work. And he brought some stuff home. And this is some of the stuff, uh, bow and arrows that... Uh, if you've been in my office, you've seen these hanging on the wall. Uh, but these are what uh, some of those uh, indigenous people use for hunting and stuff. Now, if you look at these arrows, you may notice that they're not all perfectly straight. They're not all perfectly straight. They don't have a finely honed tip. They have no fletching whatsoever to speak of. But... These guys were able to use these arrows effectively, hitting their targets. So when we make it all about children are like arrows, the fletching is this, I have no fletching. The straight shaft is this, I don't have a straight shaft. The finely honed tipped is, well, I don't have that either. Not only are they missing the point of the passage, they're ignoring reality. It's not always about the arrow. And some people may say, yeah, but you couldn't shoot an arrow like this very far. You know, it's not about how far you can shoot an arrow. It's about whether you can hit the target. Who cares if you can shoot 300 yards if you can't hit the target? It's about can you hit the target with your arrow. If this passage is about the arrow, it also sets us up for a lot of failure and discouragement. If an arrow's got to be perfectly straight, have a finely honed tipped tip, uh, if it has to have precise fletching to hit the arrow, then this application to children leaves us hopeless. I have never known a parent who perfectly trained their children. In other words, I don't know any, of any parent who has a perfectly straight finely honed, precise child. Which means, if this passage is about crafting the arrow, we're all in trouble. 
we're all in trouble. So I hope with that, I've sufficiently shown why I think this that focusing this passage on the arrow and how it's crafted is the wrong way to approach this passage. So what is the point of the passage if it isn't the arrow? No pun intended. Point of the passage. All right. As Pastor Harold would say, you'll get that Thursday. I always love it when you say that. Uh, okay, kids, I want you to think of a soldier, real or imaginary, doesn't matter. Now, this soldier is pretty well known in, in our modern culture. Think of a soldier who could do things that no regular soldier could ever hope to do. Who would you think of? Captain America. That's right. The Marines, I like that answer too. Yeah, Captain America. Here's a soldier who is able to do far above and beyond what any normal soldier could ever hope to do. The Hebrew word in this passage when it says arrows in the hand of a warrior, the Hebrew word there uh, gives the connotation of a mighty warrior. In other words, not just your run-of-the-mill soldier. It has the idea of a mighty soldier especially when you consider this was written by Solomon. Kids, who is, who is Solomon's dad? Who is Solomon's father? King? King David, that's right. Anybody ever hear of King David and his mighty men? These were some awesome soldiers. David had about 30, between 30 and 40 special elite warriors. Guys like one of them. Uh, Jashobim, what a fun name. Jashobim Mormon, what do you think, Kara? Um, he once killed 800 men in one battle by himself with only his spear. Eleazar, when all the other soldiers ran away, he stood by King David's side till the battle was done and nobody could take his sword out of his hand because he fought so valiantly. You have an, another guy who, who killed 300 men and a giant. He had several who killed giants. One of these men, even when, when King David died, one of these mighty men helped Solomon obtain the throne of his father. So Solomon grew up with these mighty men. He grew up with these soldiers who did incredible stuff. Can you imagine sitting with, down with Captain America and him telling you about all his battles that he had and how he did this, how he did that? I mean, that was Solomon. He probably heard these stories from these guys himself. But why were they able to do all of these things? Is it because they were just that awesome? No. It's because God empowered them specially to do these feats, which means that God alone was worthy of the glory for these feats. So here in this passage, Solomon, who has a background and personal relationships with these mighty men, uses a word that has the same connotation as mighty men. The, in fact, the Hebrew word itself means a mighty man. So Solomon is not talking about a run-of-the-mill run soldier. He's talking about somebody who can do incredible things. He's talking about a soldier who has devoted himself to learning the skills and knowledge necessary to be an exceptional warrior. You know, that's about all we can know about this warrior from the text. 
You know, if I started saying, and so the warrior did this as training and did that as training, I'm doing the same thing people do with the arrows. All we can know from the text is that Solomon meant above and beyond a normal warrior and that it was a highly trained, exceptional warrior. As parents, we are responsible for devoting ourselves to developing the skills and knowledge that are necessary to be godly parents. Just as this mighty warrior had devoted himself to developing the skills and the knowledge necessary to be a mighty man, we as parents are responsible to train ourselves, to devote ourselves to developing these skills. And I promise you this, you will not develop godly parenting skills by listening to the latest pop psychology or proclaimed parenting experts. The vast majority of that has nothing to do with godliness. Developing godly parenting skills starts as we, for ourselves, as parents, spend time in the Word of God, not for the purpose of knowing God's 12 steps to better parenting, not because we're desperate to know what to do with our teenager. We spend time in the Word of God for ourselves for the purpose of knowing God. Not to know how to be a better parent, not to know how to be a better wife or a better husband, but to know God. That's the main reason we have the Bible. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5 that all of Scripture points to him. That all Scripture points to him so that we can know him. So as you know God more through the word, the more you walk in his ways the more you become like Jesus. Uh, Listen to what David says in Psalm 119. He says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way, in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. God's word changes those who are his. God's word changes those who are his. So when it comes down to it, being a godly parent requires first and foremost that you be a godly person. If you're not interested in being a godly person, you will never be a godly parent. Remember, being a godly parent isn't about what you do. Being a godly parent is about who you are. Talk to some of the most godly parents you know, and you know what you'll find out? They are actually godly people who are parents. That doesn't seem too profound, does it? And you think, well, that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? But if you look at all the parenting books on the market, even within the Christian market, that reduce godly parenting down to what you do without ever talking about who you are, it makes it clear that something needs to be said about being a godly parent isn't about what you do. It is first 
about who you are. So I encourage you. I mean, that's why being a good parent is so much easier than being a godly parent. So I encourage you to devote yourself to the study of the Word of God for yourself. Uh, if you don't know where to start, get a reliable Bible study that, that takes you through a book of the Bible and do that. Uh, I recommend a, a study through a book of the Bible over a topical study, uh, although there are some great studies out there, topical studies. A study that takes you through a book of the Bible will do more to teach you how to study the Bible for yourself and how to uh, ask the right questions of the text. Uh, and it'll teach you to know God better rather than know a topic better. Again, the purpose of the Bible is for us to know God. For us to know God. And, and hear me on this. I'm going to make kind of a hard statement. If you are hesitant to devote yourself to personally study the Bible and allow God to use it to change you, if you're already thinking of several reasons why you don't have the time for that, or you can't do it for whatever reason, then you're going to be hard-pressed to sincerely say that you want to be a godly parent who wants to raise godly offspring. If somebody says, I want to drive the car, and you hand them the car keys and the gas money, and they go sit on the couch and binge on Netflix, are you going to justifiably question how much they desire to drive the car? When God gives us everything necessary for life and godliness, as he says in his word, which means godly parenting, but we're not willing to make use of what he has given us, then it justifiably calls into question, do you sincerely want to be a godly person who in turn is a godly parent? So you need to devote yourself to the study of God's word for the purpose of knowing him more and for letting him change you through his word to make you more like Jesus. Another thing a lot of these blogs and articles do when they talk about, when they focus on the arrow, is talk about how arrows are meant to be released. I agree with that, but then the way they talk about it doesn't line up with what the rest of the, the focus of the rest of the verse. I think that's because they're focusing on the arrow. Imagine an elite warrior. The enemy is charging at him. He pulls the arrow out of his quiver. Okay, I released my arrow. I sure hope it hits that guy. It missed. Can you picture an elite warrior doing that? Just releasing his arrow and hoping, well, it's a good arrow. Sure hope it hits the target. <laughs> That's not an elite warrior, okay? An elite warrior knocks his bow and he waits until the perfect time to release that arrow so that it has the most effective impact on his target as possible. Arrows aren't just made to be released. They're made to be aimed. They're not just to be released. They are made to be aimed. So how do you aim your children? Simple, actually. Not easy, but simple. You start aiming your children by living out in your daily life the supremacy of Christ in all things. 
That's how you start. And as Pastor Matt said this morning, it's not just living your life out. There is teaching and training. But parents, let me tell you, kids aren't stupid. You can talk to them about the supremacy of Christ all you want. But if they don't see in you a life that says Jesus is supreme, then you're going to have a hard time selling them on whatever it is you're telling them. Hey, that rhymed, didn't it? That should go on a t-shirt. You're going to have a hard time selling them on whatever it is you're telling them. So it really doesn't, again, doesn't matter how much you tell your children that Jesus is important or that going to church is important uh, or reading their Bible is important. And again, I'm not saying there isn't a need for actual teaching when it comes to godly offspring. But your actions, your life will trump your words every time. You intentionally aim your children for the target of seeing Jesus as supreme overall by living your life like you believe Jesus is supreme overall. Because what you believe will be lived out in your daily life. What you believe will be lived out in your daily life. But even if you aim your children through living out like you believe Jesus is supreme, even if you aim your children through consistent teaching and instruction in the Word of God, how do you actually make sure you hit the target? Look at verse 1 of Psalm 127. Uh, It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So this passage tells us that building the house, uh, watching over the city, both of those are fruitless unless God brings about the results. It is God who builds. It's God who protects. So the context of this psalm points us to the fact that it is God who brings about results which would tell us that it is also God who lands that arrow. The watchman watches in vain. The warrior fires in vain unless the Lord land the arrow. No, that's, that's not in there. That's John phrased. But that's the context that we see in this passage, that the results are determined by God. The warrior trains. The warrior aims. He releases, but it is the Lord who ultimately guides that arrow to the target. Our responsibility as parents is to allow the Lord to shape us as we live out the supremacy of Christ in our lives. But one thing we can never do, which Pastor Matt talked about earlier, is change their hearts. We can point them to the one who can, but in the end, that is all we can do. It is God who takes our efforts and brings about the results that will most glorify him. There are no guarantees of where that arrow will land, but we are guaranteed that it is a good and just God who is guiding that arrow. I wish I could tell you this morning that there are guarantees of where that arrow will aim, but if God doesn't guarantee it, I had better not, oh, I can't even think of, I'm not going to guarantee what God doesn't guarantee. I'll just put it that way. You may ask, well, if there are no guarantees of where that arrow is going to land, why go through all the effort? Why go through all the effort? Uh, Now, if you're sitting here this morning, you don't have kids. This is important for you to listen to. If you're sitting here this morning and your kids are already out of the house, 
this is important for you to listen to. If there are no guarantees to where that arrow will land, why go through all the effort? Because we don't parent for the results, or at least we shouldn't. We parent for the glory of God. Now, at first glance, this seems fruitless, but it's actually very freeing. Because if your children hitting the target are all about you, then you better make sure that arrow is as straight as possible. You better make sure that your fletching is perfectly calibrated. You better make sure that tip is as sharp as you can get it. Because if they miss the target, it's your fault. However, if God is ultimately the one guiding the arrow to that target, you know what? It's okay if you don't have a perfectly straight arrow. It's okay if your fletching is a little crooked or tattered. It's okay if your point is kind of dull. I'll let you take that however you want to. In other words, even if you as a parent don't do everything perfectly, there is still hope. There is still hope, even for parents who don't do everything perfectly. That is a hope every parent needs. The hope that it's not about how, perfect, how perfectly they parent, but it's how just and good God is and how God can take anything and bring about glorifying results. So it's not about parenting for results. That will lead to discouragement and failure. It's about parenting for the glory of God. That means God empowers you as you draw that bow. He enables you, just like God enabled those mighty men of David. He empowers you to draw the bow. He makes that arrow fly true to the exact spot that will bring him the most glory. And that means, you know, just like Captain America can't take credit for his great strength and prowess because of it's a super soldier serum coursing through his veins. It's a great analogy, huh? Uh, it means we can't take credit when our kids do hit the mark because it's God who did it. It's God who did it. He will take our efforts and use them, but it is God who hits the target. So just to sum all this up then, the greatest purpose for marriage is for it to reflect the relationship we have with Jesus. And as we, by the grace of God, as husband and wife, fulfill this purpose for marriage, it sets the stage for the purpose of family, to produce godly offspring. Producing godly offspring is as much about God shaping you as parents as it is about you shaping your children. Let me say that again. Producing godly offspring is as much about God shaping you as parents as it is you shaping your children. In fact, if you neglect being shaped by God through his word, you are neglecting shaping your children into godly offspring. You know, I once heard something from a source. Okay, it was Carmen. Uh, but he said, you can't teach what you don't know, and you can't lead where you won't go. So regardless of the source, I think that is a great quote. You can't teach what you don't know, and you can't lead where you won't go. And then ultimately, God is the one who brings about the fruit of our efforts for godly offspring. Our best efforts can never change a heart. 
We parent not for results, but for the glory of God. And in this, he receives the glory of God for our godly offspring as it should be. So you may be still wondering, so exactly what do I do with my kids? What are some things I can do to train them? Again, we don't have time in a single sermon to go over all the parenting principles that God gives in his scripture. Uh, but I don't want to leave you without anything practical um, that you can put into practice. Um, you know, there are a lot of books uh, out there that are excellent resources uh, for parents. Uh, two that I really recommend uh, are Family Driven Faith by Vodi Bauckham and Family Worship by Don Whitney. Uh, both of these books were transfer- transformational for me in my thinking about parenting and how to parent. Um, so if you truly desire to learn more about what it means to be a godly parent and get more practical insights than what we have time here on a Sunday morning, go pick these books up. They're easily available on Amazon or, or wherever you may go. But also... Uh, you know, it's great to have your children here with you this morning, uh, but your children need to know that God is worthy of worship on more than just Sunday morning. So leading your family in household worship is a great way to help your children learn this. Uh, it's also modeled through Scripture. It's the God-given responsibility for fathers. Uh, so one thing we do that Pastor Matt talked about is we offer a uh, weekly household worship guide that you can download from our website. Uh, you can go ahead and bring that next slide up. Um, uh, you can go to EdenWorshipDinner.co, click on resources, and scroll down to household worship guides. Uh, and each week's guide is based on the sermon from that Sunday, as Pastor Harold or Pastor Matt mentioned, uh, and has devotion, study guide questions, uh, activity pages for the kids. Now, ironically, there isn't one for this week. Uh, it's important to worship as a family. I give you nothing. Um, I, I didn't get finished with my sermon until Friday, so I, I didn't have time to put one together this week. So, uh, how ironic. Uh, but you can also uh, go to uh, the website, 5alone, 5alone.com. Uh, you can see the website up there. It's the number 5, I-V-E-Alone.com. Uh, download free family devotionals, activity pages from there. And full disclosure, that is my website. Uh, My intent is not to uh, self-promote. I simply want to make sure you know there are some resources that are available to you uh, as you seek to raise godly offspring by implementing family worship uh, within your household. Uh, But beginning next week, we will have the the household family guide based on our Sunday morning sermon here. Then uh, if the praise team wants to go ahead and make its way up here. Now, you may be wondering, okay, so what is the application for me? And I have to say, were you not listening? Uh, Godly parenting is about who you are. The best way to be shaped and transformed in who you are is to dig into the word for yourself for the purpose of knowing God. Don't go with any ulterior motives. It's not about this decision I have to make. What does God say about that? Or we're struggling financially. How do I learn about that? There will always be issues and topics that we can learn about. But the most important thing to know is who God is. If you want to be a better husband, know God more. 
If you want to be a better wife, know God more. If you want to be a godly person, then know God more through his word for yourself and allow him to use his word to shape and transform yourself so that you can be a godly parent who then produces godly offspring to the glory of God. And I uh, just want to point you in the bulletin. There are family discussion questions uh, there in the bulletin and a prayer focus. I encourage you uh, sometime today or sometime this week as a family, go through those questions. Uh, take some time to pray together as a family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for family. I thank you for the incredible stewardship that you have given us in our children. And Father, right now we recognize and acknowledge that these children are not ours, they are yours. You simply, for a time, give us stewardship over them. And Father, I pray for us, especially for the parents in here, that you will find us godly stewards of everything you give us, whether it is our children, whether it is our finances, whether it's our time or the gifts and abilities you've given us, may you find us as godly stewards, faithful stewards of your grace. But Father, especially for the parents, I pray that you will light a fire under us to pursue godliness in our lives. That you will light a fire under us to pursue you for the purpose of knowing you. And in that process, be changed by you. Father, that is the only hope of ever being a godly parent. Following steps, methods, will never make us godly. But Father, you can. So I pray you'll lavish your grace upon the parents here. Shape them, transform them into godly people who will then in turn be godly parents who will then glorify you as they parent for the glory of God. And Father, we will be sure and careful to give you and you alone the glory for what you do in our families through the parents, Father. To you alone be the glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.